continue our study in Ephesians. Remember, we're going through Indian map style. Um, been parked on one verse for a couple of messages, but we could, after words, finish the chapter in one or two messages, just because of the theme and a single subject. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's uh, pray, shall we? Father, as we look into the Holy Scriptures, we are mindful of the uh, words of the prophet repeated by Christ, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And we tremble at it. Father, we rejoice in hope of thy mercy and ask help, Lord, to not be hearers only, to get at the understanding of thy word, to keep in our hearts and to do it. Father, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We uh, uh, formerly looked at uh, verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And we considered that it's the grace of God that initiated and provided salvation. Uh, last week we further considered, as Paul followed with the theme, not of works lest any man should boast. And we examine the scriptures on that. Um, remember, the Ephesian church at the writing of this letter was about six years old. Uh, Paul had, um, I think, already written the letter to the Romans around this time. And he would have preached thoroughly the things contained in that epistle to them. And he's just reminding them. And what he meant, not um, that a man is not saved by the works of the law. And we considered the uh, scriptures on the various aspects of that. The work of faith and uh, repentance, believing, uh, and so on. That uh, it's the work of Christ that has obtained salvation, but it is necessary for an individual to believe and to obey for that, uh, uh, to receive that. Not of works, lest any man should boast. That is, nothing that you or I can do will enable us to earn salvation. Uh, lest we should boast, right? We considered how every other religion, um, a man's hope of heaven is based on his sense of having earned it. Worked my way through. And... and uh, <laughs> Strangely, people are thinking that a 50 or a 51 will get you into heaven. That if my good works outweigh my bad works, even by a little bit, I'll get in. And yet nobody considers that even for secular employment. If you had somebody who were paying for eight hours, and they worked for four hours and one minute, and goofed off for three hours and 59 minutes, you wouldn't say, you know what, you're a faithful worker, come on, uh, you will keep you. You know, three months probation, six, nine, depending on the kind of work. 
You'd be gone. You'd be bounced out of there so fast. And yet people base their hope of eternal life on that kind of a score. And they're not really keeping score properly. They're just comparing themselves to the, the bottom of society. I remember uh, talking with one man. I, I appreciated. I found as a teacher that I could often more easily talk about the important issues of life with the custodians than with fellow teachers. Uh, it was quite interesting. I had, uh, I mean, I appreciated my colleagues and many of us, we did have very meaningful uh, conversations. Um, an atheist colleague, he says, I, well, I'm six out of seven as an atheist. Leave a math teacher to come up with that kind of a ratio, not eight out of ten or something. Um, but this custodian, we were talking uh, after school. I had known him years before, briefly, uh, early in my career. Met him at a previous school, and here he was almost retired. He was a, what they call a floater now. He'd go from school to school, and that's why he happened to be at my school that evening. We were talking. I asked him about his soul, his hope of heaven. He said, uh, I think my chances are pretty good. You know, I, I think I'm about 50%. I, you know, he's thinking he's going to make it. I mean, I, I thought about cheating on my wife, but I never did it. So, you know, he's thinking that was pretty good, right? And this kind of a thing. People are relying on their own merits to get into heaven. And God has concluded all in sin. Uh, we looked at the parable of the uh, wedding feast. The guests were gathered, good and bad, those of a noble temperament uh, who haven't really done much bad or evil to think of and those that are real, uh, the bottom of society. God's conclude them all in unbelief, sinning by their selfishness, going their own way and has provided uh, the garments of Christ. We looked at all of this and the apostle is outlining this and he, he's transitioning uh, from his theme here. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship. The Christian, the opposite of working his way into heaven, is actually the work of God. Christian himself or herself. There, there's so much uh, comfort and joy and um, freedom in that. So very far from you working and earning your way into heaven, you believe on the Lord with an obedient, yielded heart, and He works you. You become His, you're His workmanship. He's working you into heaven. It's the opposite of how men and women think. Created, uh, which God hath before ordained, sorry, yeah, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we have two things. Hopefully we can get through both of them this morning. Um, you are the work of God. That would be one. And God has created you unto good works. That would be the other. We'll see how far uh, we get as we go through a number of scriptures on that, uh, on that subject. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Look at uh, a number of scriptures where Paul emphasizes this. Uh, well, not just Paul, sorry, where the scriptures emphasize this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God. 
who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. This is a Christian. If, if anyone's a Christian, he's a new creature. A new creation has occurred. God has made a new being. The prophet said, a new heart will I give unto you, a new spirit will I put within you. I remember years ago, a uh, uh, friend slash elder slash pastor saying to somebody, I, th- I don't remember uh, how it came to be. It might have been a visitor to the church. Yes, that's, that's who it was. Somebody visiting. And he's saying, you're not born with the Holy Spirit in you. You need to be born again. We don't just kind of gradually, you know, through some uh, self-improvement program, change. We need to be changed by God. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. The old Adam. All things are new. All things are of God. The circumstances of your life, very far from just being a random uh, circumstance or a coincidence, are ordained now of God to make you fit for heaven. And you and I need to embrace God, submit to his will, and believe in loving obedience. Uh, Paul writes to Titus, a similar theme to what he's written to the Ephesians in Titus chapter uh, 2 and verse 14. Read uh, these words. Talks about the Christian looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He'll take up and he'll continue that theme in chapter 3. This is what God is making, right? He's making a peculiar. Now that doesn't mean um, the way we use peculiar now. That's kind of odd. But uh, special, chosen, precious, uh, unique perhaps uh, people. Zealous of good works. So we'll look afterwards at... Um, you know, if we're created unto good works, what those specifically would be. In Philippians, Paul takes this, uh, continues on with this theme, or we meet it again in chapter 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We'll see that theme taken up in the words of the Lord Jesus himself later in Matthew's Gospel. It is God which worketh in you. And therefore, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Let's, uh, let's walk in our minds, in our memories, shall we? Back to that uh, occasion where Elijah the prophet, having um, 
ushered in what he thought would be a tremendous revival where God sent down fire from heaven. And instead of there being this revival, he ends up running for his life. And this spectacular miracle of God seemed, in the end, to, to not have the impact. And he, uh, he runs for his life, um, and uh, he ends up at the cave. Uh, I was going to say the cave of Dullam, that was David. But he ends up in the Mount of God, and uh, he requests to die. And I'm interest, I find it interesting, the speculations people have on that, as to why. But we won't distract ourselves with that. He saw the the fire and the earthquake pass by. God was not in the fire. He wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a still small voice. And Elijah wrapped his head in his mantle and went. Uh, Interesting that under the old covenant men covered their heads to go into the presence of God. And in the New Testament it's entirely reversed. Because the veil is done away in Christ. God was in a still small voice. And this is what happens when someone is born again. They receive the Holy Spirit. He grants an assurance of salvation in the heart. And this is the anointing that John refers to. The anointing which you have received of him. An anointing by definition, by nature, is gentle, soothing, comforting. It's not loud. It's not foreboding. And... um, if we wanted to use a metaphor, it can be, and I realize this is not a, a hard and fast stereotype, but it holds true very often. It's like the voice of the mother. I know some mothers are firebrands, but often the voice of the mother is gentle, comforting. And it is easier for many children to disregard the voice of the mother than the voice of the father. Everybody know what we're talking about with that? And... I see something of this in the Apostle's words. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God that's working in you. That still, small voice, that gentle nudging is the spirit of the holy, living God that spoke the world into being and shall judge every soul. And you heed and reverence that um, spirit. Don't let this gentle stillness make you despise and brush it off. It's God at work in you. This is what he's trying to um, harness, the fear of God that we all would have experienced with those Israelites if we were there to see Sinai thundering and smoking. Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And Paul is telling us to bring that same trembling to that still small voice of the Holy Ghost because he's the same God. And to obey him in fear and trembling. I would be ashamed to recount uh, how often I have failed in that. And perhaps some have felt even nudged to testify to somebody. But it has been easier to quench the spirit of God for so many than to overcome their fear of human rejection. And the apostle is wanting to tip that on its head and get us having a proper Um, understanding that that gentle inward teacher that the Christian receives upon regeneration is the God of heaven and you fear him and you obey. Now, this is a necessary um, instruction and I'll make this uh, point because so many Christians mistake 
the counterfeit attacks of Satan for the voice of God, vice versa. The Holy Spirit never comes with a tormenting uh, foreboding. He is consistent with the nature of Christ. Uh, He gives people time to consider whether this is actually God speaking to them. And when this kind of urging, just do, don't obey, you're, 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 you're hesitating, you're disobedient, and the condemnation that comes with it, that is clearly of the devil or your own overworked imagination. God is not like that. Rather the opposite. He, he wants you to take the time to verify that you are correctly discerning the voice of God. So be careful that you don't mistake Satan's wiles and counterfeits, and the time would fail. We'll look at those things in chapter 6 of Ephesians. It'll be a long time in that, spiritual warfare. <clears throat> it's God that works in you. Holiness, righteousness, sanctification, faith, charity above all. Hallelujah. And so we need to have the fear of God, the reverence of God. Let's look at some of the uh, Old Testament passages where Paul would have, um, as an apostle, had illumined these things to him and uh, teach them to us all. We start in, in Psalm 100, a famous psalm. Not the most, you know, nothing near as well known as Psalm 23, but I think a well known psalm. A hundred, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. The knowledge that the people of God are created by God is the basis for coming joyfully before him. Right? It takes so much of the strain and anxiety. Rejoice. This was to people under the old covenant. You're the work of God. Come in uh, happy in the Lord, thankful. Enter his gates with praise, with thanksgiving. That was a literal thing. There were gates, and these were pictures of the heavenly. There are no material gates. It's not coming through the doors of this chapel. It's the open gates of the new Jerusalem that we are already there uh, for us in the new covenant. Isaiah chapter uh, 45 uh, shows some of these things as well. This is our creator. Verse 5. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. He's speaking to Cyrus through the prophet. Cyrus hadn't been born yet. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. um, By way of passing, the passage was um, prophesying God raising up Cyrus the king, who would be the one to bring again the, uh, the Jews or give commandment concerning them to return from the Babylonian captivity. This prophecy was given to Isaiah well before the captivity for Cyrus, whom God would create and raise up and, uh, and cause the Jews to be able to rebuild the temple hundreds of years later. It's possible, perhaps probable, that Daniel, as a prophet of God, 
and as a very important person in the Babylonian kingdom, would have had amongst his many privileges a copy of the Holy Scriptures for himself. It's possible. It's possible that he shared this very prophecy of Isaiah with Cyrus. Or God may have done it uh, directly through a dream. We don't know, but certainly that's a, a possibility. And God here, speaking to Cyrus, it would seem to me strange for the Lord to speak to Cyrus and never let Cyrus read or hear what God had spoken to him. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it, I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. We see here God establishing his utter creatorhood. Later, uh, or earlier, I forget which chapter now in Isaiah. I think it's actually a couple earlier, one or two chapters earlier. He'll write to, or he'll say to the nation of Israel, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. God's not insulting them. God is putting them in mind of how small we are and how powerful he is. (laughs) The late Sir Winston Churchill, the wartime prime minister of Great Britain during the Second World War, said this, it's true that we are all worms, but I do think I am a glowworm. (laughs) Pride's a hard thing to kill for a man. Hmm? It's just got to be a little bit better than all the other worms. God is establishing here through the prophet that everything is under his control. Now, you understand, when he says he creates evil, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about evil circumstances. What insurance companies call acts of God. Tornadoes, earthquakes, and so on. Um, God is not uh, taking ownership for your sin. He's saying, I create the peaceful times, tranquility. The, the, uh, we sing it, how great thou art. The gentle breeze, the sunshine. And he creates the turbulent storm. And woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Right? Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. You're just like broken pottery. And if you want to scrap, scrap with your fellow potsherd. But woe unto him that strives with his maker. That fights against God, that uh, rejects his will. We are his workmanship. There's a submit. Imagine, I mean, 
working wood can be challenging. Wood can be difficult just on its own. Maybe it's my skill level that's a problem. But can you imagine that pushing a piece of wood on the jointer or something and it's like, I'm not going in there and just chasing it around the, the shop like if it would, it would become firewood at that point. It's challenging enough just to work it when it's on the bench submitting to the tool. The grain can be difficult. You have to get the tool razor sharp and, and adjusted properly. But it's laying there completely submissive and I'm trying to work it. If this thing was off and running around and trying to smack me, you know, striving with me, it would be kindling really fast. Think about the patience of God. Are you as good as a piece of wood that will just lie submissively in the hands of its maker? Surely we can at least do as much as that. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Right? Um, arguing, what makest thou? Woe unto him that saith unto his father, what begettest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? I remember a teenage friend of mine and myself wickedly talking about backchatting our parents, you know. I don't know if we ever did it, but we were egging each other on in this wickedness. So, you know, next time my mom or dad rebukes, or we wouldn't have used the word rebuke, but tell me off or something, I'm going to say, well, I'm your child. Like, you know, it's your fault kind of thing. Woe to even to your earthly parents, God pronounces a woe on that. How much more then uh, is the man in trouble that strives with his maker? Just think of the ridiculousness of fighting against the God that made this entire universe. Comparatively speaking, the planet on which we live is smaller to the universe than a flea is to the entire planet. It's just as nothing. And this being of God spoke it into being. Uh, Let us uh, fear and tremble and serve him. Created, I've made the earth and created man upon it. These, I, I trust or I suppose, would have been thoughts in the apostle's mind, inspired by the Spirit of God. Not my expositions, but these scriptures. Jeremiah 18, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause thee to hear my words. And uh, <clears throat> behold, you know, the potter's house, he, he wrought a work on the wheels and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of potter. So he made it again, another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. We are his workmanship. Let us submit to the workman. Uh, Let us be yielded like clay to the hand of God and submissive. Mm. These are passages worthy of uh, slower contemplation. I do hope to uh, move uh, through this this subject. It's grand. Initially, I had thought, you know, I would just mention it in passing. But as I considered, um, it is it behooves us to spend some time uh, meditating on this. There are other passages and. 
perhaps in the interest of time we won't read them, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 35 to 58, where Paul is writing about the resurrection. And this, there's something, uh, the point I wanted to draw out here, we'll break in in, in verse uh, 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. It's one kind of flesh of men, another of flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, right? And bodies terrestrial, heavenly and earthly. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial, the heavenly, is another. Oh, sorry, the, the, um, the terrestrial is earthly. Celestial is one. The glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Um, while we're thinking that, let's turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Right? So this whole theme of pride. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And uh, if you differ in gifts and talents and abilities, natural and spiritual, you could be taller and stronger, um, better looking, whatever it is you think, who made you that way? Now I know we can do some limited things with what God has given us. We can't improve our height any, no matter how much we think about it. That's going to happen or not, based on the creation of God. Uh, who maketh thee to differ? Some are destined of God. Some are created of God to far greater glory than you or I. The Apostle Paul, uh, he is uh, foreordained to a very, very glorious place in the resurrection. I'd be happy to be the shoeshine boy in the kingdom. Doorkeeper, chimney sweep, whatever it is. Be happy to be there. They differ in glory. And God has made it so. Ah, and we should be accepting. You know, brethren, please consider this. And this is not meant as a, a reproach on anyone. Uh, we can commonly look at somebody that's I don't know, got lots going for them. Whether they're very, very beautiful or, or wealthy or whatever it is. And there can be a pride and an arrogance, uh, an unpleasant swagger, an odious boastfulness that permeates their being. You, you know what I mean? I know you don't judge people, but we've probably all encountered that and seen it somewhere. And we think, oh, that's prideful, you know. Um, but the opposite is true. You might feel you just have one little gift and it's not much. God could have made you with a thousand gifts. He's happy and pleased to bless you with that one gift. It's more likely you've got a lot more than you realize, but there it is. And for you to feel inferior, not the proper spiritual esteeming other better than yourself but just this feeling inferior compared to that other person you think is more gifted that is pride and that is to be repented of rejoice in God he's given you think of an orchestra right so you've got their lead violin or whatever I reveal some of my ignorance and then you've got this 
quaint looking bloke with a triangle, you know, and he dings it every now and again. That's it. That's it. He's got one note and he plays it every now and again. When he's sitting there, like, I'm not even going to bother. Ding, you know. It's an insult. Play a note. Play it with joy unto the Lord. Let us put away the pride of comparing and self-esteem. How about we have Christ-esteem? You know, low self-esteem. You shouldn't have any self-esteem. You should have Christ-esteem and rejoicing in God. This, yeah, I don't want to say uh, too much on that. We are his workmanship. You're insulting the workman if you are disgruntled with the work. Right? Think of the uh, woodwork that I try and do. And, yeah, what would I do? Yes, I'm... I think I'm now the junior partner in Vendries and Dad woodworking. But my son tries to help me do things more intelligently than I do. And you've got all these details. So you've got the big top and everyone's going to see it. And you've got these little square pegs, you know, just less than half inch by half inch. And they're really important. They don't do anything. They just sit there and look beautiful. And one on its own is looks odd. It's like a pimple in an unfortunate spot on our face. You know, it looks odd. But... Combined, it really enhances the beauty of the piece. Put there by the designer. But that little square peg thinks like, man, compared to the top or the doors, I'm just useless. I'm just going to pop out of here. And he leaves an ugly hole. Right? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And let us rejoice in that and do our utmost for his highest. There's no boasting in the, in the kingdom. Uh, except, as the psalmist said, in God we boast all the day long. <clears throat> all right. Uh, I had a summary statement I, I wrote down, jotted down here. That we are God's workmanship is integral to salvation by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That sounded better to my mind when I first wrote it down. But the, the fact of being part of the work, being the work of God, just goes along. Salvation is God's work. And you're a part of his work. And let us be yielded work. <clears throat> All right, created unto good works, right? It's the second part of that verse in Ephesians. Uh, what are those good works? And I would submit that they could be categorized into, um, well, several categories. But I was thinking two primarily. Uh, spiritual and natural. And then the natural ones have, well, they could all be broken down from there. Let's look in Acts chapter 10 uh, for a, a Start, we'll go through a few scriptures and then comment on some of those things. Here we're just going to break into this uh, sermon. Uh, Peter is preaching to Cornelius, verse 37. That word I say ye know which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good. And healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God 
was with him. Good works. The miracles that Jesus did were good works. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Look at this in excuse me, John um, chapter 14, John's Gospel. He's talking to the disciples. He's saying some farewell words uh, to them. They've followed him on the earth. He's about to depart and send the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 14, verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. These are spiritual works. Uh, And the apostles did them. The apostles raised the dead. The apostles cast out devils. But they did even greater works. The apostles' works of the Lord Jesus never did. The apostles laid hands on people and they received the Holy Ghost. That was not possible until after Christ had died and risen from the dead. And these were the greater works that, uh, that they were able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And though you and I might soberly contemplate that, we don't, uh, that we're not apostles and it's questionable what miracles God might do through any of us if the circumstance arose, yet every one of us has great reason to hope that God can use any of us and all of us to minister the word of God to someone and see them born again and receive the Holy Ghost. And that is a good work. Uh, Paul addresses this in in Philippians chapter 2. We had, I think, read, uh, read those words. Right? Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding forth the word of life. It's a good work. John John earlier records in his gospel in chapter 6 when the uh, people were now, they'd gone from praising Christ to being antagonistic against him. And... uh, And they said unto him, in verse 28, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Good work. Preach the gospel. It's a good work. You're created unto it. Collectively as a congregation and individually. Holding forth the word of life. Not shrinking back, brethren. Let us fear God, not men. Let us love not our lives to the death. We are not faced with torture and death. It may come yet. We are faced with social ridicule and rejection. Being thought a nut. And it's not that we fear that so much. It's not a thing to be feared. It's that we just are proud and don't want people to think we're silly people. And we need to repent of that. And um, I mean rejection is unpleasant. But let us be bold in God. Let us be yielded to the Spirit. It doesn't mean you have to, like my uh, acquaintance years ago, out of a slavish bondage, he had to witness to every human being he encountered. It would take him eight hours to walk 200 yards to the grocery store, buy a bag of milk, and home. Because he had to witness to every human being he came across. Eight hours to buy a bag of milk. Um, That's not what we're talking about. But there, yielded to God, worshipping, praying, Lord, what can I say to this person to bless them in your name? God knows their, their circumstance. 
and uh, can give you the words to say. Let us be fearless. The righteous are bold as a lion. So this is a good work, brethren, that we are, are um, created in Christ Jesus unto. But there are others. There are public works of righteousness. Let's uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount, shall we? And we're not going to try an exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll skate pretty fast through it. Public works of righteousness. All right? I just draw our attention to, to two seemingly contradictory statements of the Lord. All right? Chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Right? You want men to see your good works. Chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now, the Lord Jesus did not have bad memory. He wasn't contradicting himself. There are different types of works. There are some works that are to be seen and some that you're trying to do in private. And the works that are to be seen are works that nobody's able to hide. Uh, They are your public life. And he's saying that let your public life be righteous. Alms deeds, prayer. Prayer is not public life. Prayer is your private life. And so you don't do that to be seen. Right? This is, this is the, why there are those two different commandments. So the Lord has told them in chapter 5 verse 13. Where this passage starts. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. Right? And men light a candle to give light to the house. Let your light shine before men. That they may see your good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That men and women can see the nature of God and the kingdom of God manifest in the people of God. That's why he's created. So let's look at some of those uh, public visible works. Um, Verse 21 in chapter 5. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come And offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. And the judge deliver thee to the officer. And thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee. Thou shalt by no means come out thence. Till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now this is basic. This is junior kindergarten. Christian living. Has to deal with anger. Being angry at somebody. And we want to understand this properly. Uh, what is the Lord actually saying? Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Now, understand what that does not mean. It doesn't mean whoever is angry without a reason. Nobody's angry without a reason. The term without a cause means and implies without a just cause. 
This is the phrase David used when he went uh, to run that errand for Jesse, his father, to deliver the food to his brethren. And he heard Goliath, and he was indignant that Goliath should be insulting God. And his brothers rebuked him for being an uh, uppity, proud uh, youngster. And he said, is there not a cause? See, there was a just cause for righteousness. And so it's whoever is angry at his brother over something that God would not be angry at them over. God's not going to support you in this. It's not that you have no reason. He said something, I didn't like it. I got angry at him. That's a reason, but it's not a cause. Right? Ah, Is it something worthy of of anger, of God's anger. And whoever is angry like that is in danger of um, danger of the judgment. And then he talks about your, your mouth calling someone a fool or, or you know, other insults. You're in danger of hellfire. We, it's another study. But how we speak to and of others is actually a very serious thing. And the scripture is very serious about it. Um, disputing doctrine and passionate disagreements there are, are seem to be acceptable in the scripture. But abusing somebody by um, accusing them of evil things in their heart is something that the scriptures denounce. And uh, in very severe terms. You don't lightly accuse somebody of, uh, of something. You better have your facts straight or you are in big trouble with God. For just assuming evil on the part of someone. And this is what the Lord is saying. So here at a basic level, your good works in this is that you are never angry at somebody. It's not something worthy of, of wrath. Now if somebody were to defile one of your children... I would dare say that that is a cause by which you could and should be right to be angry and do something about it. I don't mean murder the person in retaliation. But that is a cause for anger. There are causes for anger. But they are rare in the day-to-day of life. Somebody cutting you off in traffic, that's not a cause for anger. Somebody budding in front of you in the grocery store, that's not a cause for anger. The daily nitty-gritty of life rarely provides a cause for anger. But the carnal person is often angry at all sorts of things. And your good works as you walk in the spirit of Christ is that you don't partake in that anger. You're filled with the spirit of Christ. You're walking in love. You you are patiently um, bearing with somebody. Cuts you off in traffic. You pray for them. Lord, keep that person safe. Give them some sense. And... uh, don't know what's going on in their life. You see, you, you bless those that curse you. These are your good works. The person driving beside you sees this generous spirit and they glorify God. Your light is shining. This is the nature of the Lord Jesus. This is a basics. J.K. Anger is, is pretty, pretty um, uh, base uh, human emotion. Right? <clears throat> So that kind of thing. And this, agree with thine adversary quickly. The assumption there is that you are actually guilty. You don't agree to something you didn't do. That's unrighteous as well. <clears throat> but if you have done wrong, you be hasty to make that, or diligent rather, to make that right. 
Uh, that's the thing. So whenever you have done something amiss, your brother has ought against you. It means legitimately so. All kinds of people had all sorts of things against the Lord Jesus. And he ignored them and carried on. The implication is that if your brother has a legitimate complaint with you. You have wronged your brother and you haven't made that right. You remember, you go and deal with that uh, quickly, uh, immediately. Uh, But you can't make somebody like you. The Lord Jesus probably had more enemies than anybody. And, uh, And he ignored that because they're... It was unjust. They didn't have something legitimate against him. So that's just to help us understand those things. Uh, <clears throat> but yes, um, no, none of the selfish anger that's so common to man. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. There we are in spousal and marital purity. Right? Your eyes. I I couldn't believe it. You know, I remember as a young man, uh, still in my teens. And, uh, well, I could find that the... The, the way, um, you know, half of society dressed or undressed in public, as the case might be, could be uh, tempting. And so I made a covenant with my eyes. I remember getting on the bus, a transit, and I just fixed my eyes on the back of the bus. Look not to the left or to the right had a very literal meaning for me. And as I was walking straight to the back of the bus, I heard two teenage girls say, Look at that guy. He's not letting his eyes check out all the girls on the bus. Just, I was stunned, but I, I didn't even let my eyes check out who was saying that. I just kept on going. Um, that's a minimum uh, there. But the, the promiscuity and the infidelity is very common in our society. Divorce rates, I think, are equal or higher to marriage. Well, not equal to marriage rates. Marriage rates, 100% of all marriages are weddings. And half of them end in divorce, I gather, roughly. That's a lot. Let divorce not be once named among us. God forbid that Christian people should renounce the covenant that they've made in the sight of God and forsake loving one another. So, Christians, husbands and wives that love each other, not fake, not forced, That's a good work. That's a light that shines. It's a light that shines. Ah, wow. Husbands, love your wives. That's one of my favorite commandments. Uh, Let your good works, uh, let let men see your good works, right? So no divorce. You're faithful to your spouse, loving one another. Um, Verses 33 to 37 has to do with communication, right? And the the Jews were famous for their many oaths and what you could break. So you could make an oath, but it's almost like pinky swears and whatever children did, you know. Cross my fingers behind my back, so what I say I don't have to keep. And all of this, they had this elaborate system of oath-taking. But the Christian is known when he says he's going, yes. His yes means yes. Yeah, I'll pay you this much for that. That's it, you don't have to worry about it. 
you know that it's there. Your, your word is good. True. This is a light that shines. You can always, when brother so-and-so, when that man says this, when this woman says that, you know he or she is going to do it. They're as good as their word. This is a light that shines. You're created unto these good works. And many beside. Um, verse 38 Look at this, the meekness of the Christian. These are public injury, right? You've heard an eye for an eye, and that's what's given by Moses to regulate revenge. If somebody poked someone else's eye out, they're not using to just want to get one eye out. They want to just really mash the person up. This was not spiteful as a law. This was justice. You can't make someone blind in both eyes because he poked one of your eyes out. This was a restraint on retaliation, amongst other things. But here the Christian, if someone smites thee on thy right cheek, this is not a fist to the teeth. This is the indignant, the the, um, insult that was very common in society for hundreds of years, uh, millennia. You box somebody across the face. It stings and it's a public humiliation. That's what that's about. It's not, not, the Lord isn't addressing violent assault and I'm not going to get involved in that right now all right that's another subject and for another time but that's not what's in view it's public insult and shame and you respond meekly you're blessing blessing those that curse you this is a light right this is a public situation you've been publicly insulted and you respond graciously you have to respond somehow There's no hiding what's going on, right? These are public works. And it's here that our good works are meant to be seen by others. We're ordained to these good works. Uh, And we could go on and on, except we are out of time. That We'll we'll mention um, others. You can look through the remainder of the chapter and discern for yourselves which are public and private works. Um, In writing to Timothy, Paul talks about the widow, if she has followed diligently every good work, washing the saints' feet, relieving the afflicted, right? Lodging strangers. These are all good works. Hospitality, humble service. By love, serve one another. The Lord Jesus says, I've washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet. As we studied together, we concluded it wasn't a ceremonial foot washing, it was just a Humble, doing for one another things that we could do for ourselves. By love, serve one another. There are private works of alms in chapter 6. We'll skate by them quickly, right? Um, Giving alms. Giving to the poor. And so many brethren take that so faithfully that they don't even want their normal church offerings to be known. But... That's not a thing, right? Remember, uh, there's no shame in that. You're not doing it to show off. Remember in the book of Acts, they sold whatever they had and they laid it at the apostles' feet. That was a public thing. Everyone knew. The Lord's talking about those private things where you're helping out someone in need. You don't go blabbing it around the place. You're giving to the poor beggar. Contributing to the church fund is not, does not have to be a private thing, although if you're going to err, it's better to err on the side of being unknown than than showing off for sure. We don't want uh, anything to do with pride. But he's talking about giving to the poor. Right? 
Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Um, <clears throat> fasting. You're fasting unto God, right? So the younger you are, at least if you're of Andres with the high metabolism, fasting is just about death's door. I, it took me years to realize what was going on with Esau. I had sympathy for Esau. I thought, man, like, wow, that's so hard. The guy was starving to death and, you know, he sold his birthright so he wouldn't starve to death. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, a you know, projection. Because, yeah, on church fast days, I, as, a, as a young man in the cabinet shop, I kept an emergency jar of peanut butter. And sometime by 4 o'clock, I just wasn't going to make it out of spoon. I'd just go in for the peanut butter just to survive that last hour of the day, right? Oh, dear. And so, you know, fasting can be uncomfortable, when you, especially when you're young. Now, it's not nearly so much. Uh, you know, I'm a grandpa after all, and your body doesn't need so much to, to eat and all of those things. But as a young man, you know. But the Pharisees, they wanted you to know they were fasting. And so it's just like, just like the, the, the martyr posture, you know, and just disfigure their face like, I want you to know how pious I am. I'm fasting for all of you carnal people here that God will bless us with his kingdom. And, you know, just so that you will really think I'm a spiritual person, right? This is the kind of hypocrisy the Lord was reproving. No, you, you're doing it to God. You anoint your, you don't want anyone to know. You're just out there serving and cheerful. You're carrying this before God. You're praying for the welfare of his kingdom and his people. Between you and God. These are private works. But they're good works. And we have been ordained to them. Created unto these good works. But these are private works. We don't go boasting about them. They're not to be seen by men. They're to be seen of God. Right? And the, the chapter is like that. Um, you can look at that. You're not worrying about money. You're free from anxiety. You don't have to go around telling. Oh I never worry about money. I just trust God. You know some people can be quite boastful about their, their humility and their faith um, but in your heart before God right yeah, trusting private works and with that and we'll close um, inward works of the heart Matthew chapter 7 judge not that ye be not judged for with what judgment ye judge ye shall be judged and with what measure ye meet it shall be measured to you again and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye or how wilt thou say to thy brother let me pull out the mote out of thine eye and behold a beam is in thine own eye thou hypocrite first cast out the beam out of thine own eye and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's Aye. We won't get into expounding the passage there. We're, we're out of time. There's a lot to look at there. Let's just deal with the parts of the heart. Because the heart leads to the action. Now you're going to go and talk to the person about it. But before you get to that stage, there's something going on in your heart. Right? You're judging. You're gazing at something. Past your own faults, you're staring at your brother's faults. That's... That's between you and God. God sees your heart. This, is a, this isn't a, an arms deed. It's your disposition. This is your heart's activity. This is this, brethren, you, you know, what do you see when you see somebody walking by? Sorry. We were on an installation on Friday. 
And we had to go to Home Depot and I saw, we saw an elderly woman shuffling along with a walker. We've had an elderly woman living with us for three and a half years. And they don't look impressive. Is that right? You ever seen these elderly people? They really look like the most unimpressive citizens in our society. But what do you think when you see? You see, this is... I talked with my son who was with me. commented, you know, like, what a shame she doesn't have anyone that loves her to go to the store. Why is this woman who can barely walk having to go to Home Depot? So we had a conversation. said, don't know. Uh, maybe, because it's hard to give up your independence, maybe she doesn't want someone doing it. So we considered that. Maybe she prayed all her children away. They're off serving the Lord in different countries. I have no idea. We look at people all the time. And God sees our heart's activity as we look at people. And you and I have been created to look at people lovingly. New creatures in Christ. Jesus, he saw this covetous, rich young ruler who didn't know himself, didn't realize he wasn't nearly the good person he thought he was. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he didn't shame him publicly. He didn't expose him to anybody else except himself. Did it in the most gracious, loving way possible. Read it and contemplate. And you and I have been created to those works that we look at people with a charitable disposition, assuming the best, Accusation and putting forth the finger and fault finding is so far removed from our hearts. God sees it. It's beautiful in his sight. We, uh, we, we value um, external things, you know. We want to make sure we're not fashion conscious or indecent, modest attire and so on. But brethren, let us never look at somebody that's just dressed like an average worldly person and assume that they're spiritually deficient. They could simply lack the understanding you have in that one particular, but they could be miles ahead in so many other things. It's the heart, right? The heart and how we judge. These are works, and we've been created unto good works, to think charitably at people, kindly, benevolently, a fountain of goodness. Goodness in sharing the gospel of Christ with them and praying for God to do miracles in their lives. Those are good works. Public works of righteousness, temperance, kindness in all the various scrapes of life. Private good works of alms deeds and assisting others that no one else needs to know about. And inward works of the heart where love And holiness rule supreme. You're God's workmanship. These are the works he's doing in you. Through the gospel. As the earth bringeth forth her bud. And as the garden causes the things that are sown.
to spring forth. So the Lord God shall cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. So said the prophet Isaiah at the end of chapter 61, I believe. Looked it up uh, this morning. Let's walk in these things, brethren. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Um, This is so opposite to uh, earning our way into heaven. This is God working his son and life in us. Amen.